Okay, excellent. So it is, you know what? I need a Bible. One moment. It's good to be here. Ah. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> so often I, you know, have moments where I appreciate just, you know, being, being a part of this congregation, a part of this family. Um, and it's times like the prayers, you know, that I, that I really just see, you know, God, you really have created a space and a place for me, um, like you have for everybody else who's here, um, for such a time as this. Um, we just never know, you know, just in terms of what each other are going through, how that actually resonates and affects each other. Um, I don't know if, if I've ever mentioned this to, to folks, but there's a friend of mine um, who I grew up with as, as a kid, um, and uh, I used to live in Japan. I, li I grew up in Japan, um, a small island off of the coast of Japan. And uh, he was a, a good friend of mine. Our mothers were best friends. Um, anyway, I you know, lost contact with him over the years. Um, and he ended up going off to the military academy. Um, and I remember when I was going off to college, he's, he's a few years ahead of me. Um, I got a call from his mom one day when I was trying to uh, decide which college I wanted to go to. And um, I had gotten accepted to the military academy. And uh, I didn't want to go. Um, not that I have anything against the military, but I was raised in the military. Um, and so I was like, well, you know, I don't know if I want to continue to do that because I kind of have the inside scoop on what that's really like. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, his mom called me one day, and she was trying to convince me to go to the Air Force Academy with her son. Um, and I'm like, I hadn't heard from her in 20 years. Well, no, I was 18 at the time, so I guess I hadn't heard from her about 10 years. Um, and I ended up not going, um, went, went elsewhere. Um, hadn't heard anything for a long time, but it, it turns out, you know, how God puts people in your life and for reasons that you don't realize. Uh, he, he ended up, if, if you remember when about a year ago, um, there was a bad shooting um, and it was in Dallas um, and somebody shot up a lot of police officers. Um, and he was actually, he was the trauma surgeon who was trying to actually save their lives. I don't remember if you remember this fellow on TV. African-American fella, um, and he, he wasn't able to save any of them. Um, and for, for a doctor, for a surgeon, you know, how that just resonates when this is what you do. It's, it's you see yourself as a healer, somebody who can help, um, and you're unable to do so on the national stage, you know, and that really, that really impacted him. Um, and he's part of a hospital called Parkland Hospital. And so uh, we got reconnected at that point um, because we do similar work focused on first responders. And we ended up, of late, we, we wrote an article to try to help first responders who respond to these shootings. Um, and we wrote that article, and it came out in January last month. Um, and here we are again, you know. And no doubt, these shootings, you know, happen. These incidents of violence happen. And, and that affects first responders. And, you know, it, I, I look at it in terms of, wow, I realize that in Parkland, Florida, you know, this has happened. Um, and he was a part of a hospital, Parkland Hospital, and how that just resonates with him and everybody else who has ever been involved in a situation like that. You know, they have to go into this mode where they have to be very intentional about their taking care of themselves because when you have a trauma, you know, little things like that aren't, aren't little. <laughs> they're, they're huge, and things can trigger it. Um, and so in talking with him over the past week, you know, I'm just reminding him, hey, make sure you're taking care of yourself, and he's doing all the right things um, to do that. Um, but, you know, our prayers, you know, how, how I can be positioned in a way where um, 
be able to speak into situations that are horrendous. You know, I just look at God and say, God, you know, you've had me doing this for seven years. How do I, you know, sustain this? And I actually look at, well, you've placed me in a family um, here, all of you, um, that actually God provides what I need. You know, and I say, you know, you've got Jesus and God is guiding you and leading you. You've got all that you need. You've got more than enough. Um, And you can face the worst that the world and life throws at you. Um, And a lot of times that does not end according to how we may want it to end, you know, but when, when you are with God in the process, you know, it is just amazing to see how God gets the glory no matter what the outcome um, and how God uses us. And just know that these prayers, when we pray together, um, these are prayers that, you know, infuse me and I take them and I, I pass them along to everybody who I know. It just, it gives me the space to be able to do that, not just here, not just in Southern California, but in places like Dallas, you know, pr- probably in places like Florida, as I'll probably uh, have in a interaction with folks there in the coming weeks as well and all over the world. So just know that God has been using us in ways that we don't even know. When we get to heaven, we will actually see, you know, just the glory that comes as a result of what God has has invested us with. Um, God has given us some gifts, given us some opportunities, and it's great to see us actually operate in that. All that to say, I'm going to actually waylay this into what we're going to talk about today, which is what is it that God gives us? And what do we do with these opportunities and things that God gives us? Um, And it's just an encouragement to recognize that, you know, God has done a lot for us, absolutely. God has called us then to do something with the things and the opportunities and the salvation that God actually gives us. We are to do something. We're to put that into practice in ways that, that ultimately bring him glory. So we will be looking at the parable of the talents, the parable of the talents. And so this is going to be found in Matthew chapter 25, verses 14 through 30. Matthew 25, 14 through 30. I'm sorry? In RSV, if we can hang with that. All right. All right. So Matthew chapter 25, it starts off, Jesus is actually talking to the disciples, and he's actually conveying to them what the kingdom of God is like. And one of the things that I've always been struck by in my reading of scripture, especially when Jesus is actually speaking and what they record about Jesus, is Jesus always says things in a way that leaves people either scratching their heads, bewildered, befuddled, or it just turns things upside down in ways that they haven't, haven't thought about before, and it leaves you to think. Um, I know a lot of times we look at the Hollywood movies and, you know, the portrayals of Jesus, it's like this, you know, boring individual who's kind of odd and weird and speaking in sort of lofty phrases, and I'm so glad that we don't make movies that portray Jesus in that way anymore, because I cannot imagine that that is actually how Jesus was. Um, the things that Jesus actually said when we actually look in Scripture, it's like, wow, Jesus is challenging everybody around him. Jesus is challenging the structures around him. When Jesus speaks, things are not the same. Ultimately, the things that Jesus said actually resulted in his being crucified. And when his disciples took his message, ultimately the things that they passed along that Jesus spewed in them also got them crucified. And here we are standing today, and the message that Jesus gives us, you know, I, I thank God that we live in a country where it is not likely that we're going to be crucified for standing for Jesus. But it does still create situations where 
it can be quite uncomfortable. It can be quite uncomfortable with the people who know us, the people who live with us, our family members, when we really take a stand and try to live out the calling that Jesus has called us to, it does create some difficulty. It's not necessarily an easy road, but God gives us all that we need. So Jesus is talking to his disciples about what the kingdom of God is, a kingdom of God is like, and then he goes into this parable, a story, and it goes, the kingdom of God is like, for it is as if a man going on a journey summoned his slaves and entrusted his property to them. To one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. The one who had received the five talents went off at once and traded with them and made five more talents. In the same way, the one who had the two talents made two more talents. But the one who had received the one talent went off and dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those slaves came and settled accounts with them. Then the one who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five more talents, saying, Master, you handed over to me five talents. See, I have made five more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and trustworthy slave. You have been trustworthy in a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. And the one with the two talents came also and said, Master, you handed over to me two talents. See, I have made two more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and trustworthy slave. You have been trustworthy in a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Then the one who had received the one talent also came forward saying, Master, I knew that you were a harsh man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you did not scatter seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master replied, you wicked and lazy slave. You knew, did you, that I reap where I do not sow and gather where I did not scatter. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and on my return I would have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to the one with the ten talents. For all those who have, more will be given, and they will have an abundance. But from those who have nothing, even what they, will even what they have will be taken away. As for this worthless slave, throw him into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. A little harsh, maybe. A little harsh, maybe. It's a familiar passage to most of us, um, and if I could summarize it this way, so there's a master, and this master is obviously a person of great wealth. He's about to embark on a journey, and he's going to be gone for a long period of time, and before he goes, he actually calls three of his slaves to him, and he actually is giving them and investing them with a lot of his wealth, a lot of his property, the talents. And so when you look up what is a talent, you know, a lot of times we talk about talents as our gifts and abilities. What this is actually conveying is a talent is, is a sum of money, a sum of resources. It's a fairly large sum of money. So when you look up what, how much is that? Back then, a talent, it, there's variation. It can be anywhere from six years' salary to 16 years' salary, a significant sum of money. And so he's investing a large amount of resources with slaves. And he gives them this, and they go out, and obviously two of them, actually make a 100% uh, return on that investment. So by the time the master comes back, two of the slaves actually have doubled what they've been given. But then you've got this third slave, the one, and instead of actually engaging or doing something with what the master has given him, 
he actually does nothing with it at all. And he gives it back to him completely unused. And then obviously, there's no reward for that. There's a punishment for that. Now, if you're like me, I look at that and I said, hmm, what stands out about this for me primarily is how harsh that punishment is um, because I'm looking at, wow, you took away something that he only had one of. I mean, he had very little, and you take that away, and you give it to the person who has the most. I'm like, this is like Robin Hood in reverse, where, you know, instead of rob from the rich, give to the poor, take from the poor, give it to the ones who have the abundance. You know, and I'm like, God, that really just doesn't seem like what I thought would be going on with the kingdom of God. And I realized that, you know, a lot of times we bring our Western American lens to these stories, and it does trip us up a bit. It does trip us up a bit. And so I'm going to go through this, and I'm going to ask you to take off sort of that American way of looking at things and maybe try to appropriate, okay, here's how they actually would have heard this story back in Jesus' day, in his context. And it's quite different. From an American perspective, we're going to be in touch with some things like, wow, this is God endorsing capitalism. This means go out and make money. And I don't really think that that is what God's purpose is with this one. I think when we look at it from our perspective, we're going to miss the punch of what Jesus is actually conveying. When Jesus spoke, people came away either scratching their heads, conflicted, they were different in some way. And I think we miss a major part of what Jesus was actually communicate, communicating because we're looking at it from, from our cultural lens and we're missing their cultural lens. And so, you know, instead of maybe looking at this as sort of a, a passage that is encouraging stewardship, you know, using the gifts that God has given us, and, and that's a good thing to encourage. It ab absolutely is. Um, I don't want to take that away. Um, but I maybe want to look at this in terms of, you know what, God deals very seriously with our sin, very seriously with it. But at the same time, there's tremendous grace that God gives us in the process. Last week when I was listening to Lucas actually share the message, I mean, it was, it was number one, excellent. Um, because he took, a, he took a real risk. I mean, he really stepped out there um, and, and let God use him in some ways that I don't think most people would have the courage to do. It's scary a lot of times for us to think about, wow, God, you know, can, can I really open myself up in this way? Um, and, and I think God got our attention in saying, you know what, here's an example of how I want to use each and every one of you. And I think a lot of us might think, wow, that, that's really scary. But I think one of the things that really stuck with me in terms of what Lucas was conveying was, but what was his experience? What was Lucas's experience through that whole process? It was this amazing grace that he received when you actually might have anticipated the opposite. You might have anticipated actually being, quote-unquote, crucified, <laughs> quote-unquote, chained, you know, and, but it was the opposite. And it made me think, you know, this, this is, I, I hope this is like a picture of, of what it's like in heaven because I think so often I've realized that when I think about what have I always heard in church and how have I heard those things, 
it's always culminated in, you know, one day, Rick, you're going to stand before God, and all the things in your life that you thought were hidden is going to be put on the big screen. How many people have heard that? My reaction to that is, well, I don't want that day to come. God, don't come back. You know, that is kind of what my reaction is, because I'm thinking the shame. I'm thinking, wow, I'm going to be embarrassed. But in actuality, when I think about God and when I consider, okay, God, what are you showing us, you know, when, when you are speaking through the various folks who you bring through each, each week, I'm like, God, there's tremendous grace in the process. Yes, you take our sin seriously. Yes, you will absolutely deal with it. There will be an accounting for that. But in the process, when we stand before that screen, if that's what it is, and things get flashed, I do not think that our response is going to be shame. I think our response is more likely to be Look at all the grace that was available to us that we did not take advantage of. You remember that, that commercial, I could have had a V8? I don't know if you remember that. <laughs> I, I think that is more likely to be the response when we realize, you know, I did not have to continue to run in fear and hide because God actually knew exactly what was needed and he had actually prepared that for us if we had only just grabbed a hold of it. And God would still deal very seriously with our sin, but there's tremendous grace there. And I think that is what the passage is actually saying if we look at it through Jesus' context. So let's shift our lens a bit and look at it maybe from a first century way of looking at this context. What stands out then, if we go and try to, try to take off the, the Western American lens of looking at it, Jesus is communicating God deals very seriously with our sin. That is why we have the latter part of that passage. Sin absolutely demands a reckoning. But the entire first part of that passage, full of grace. When you think about, first of all, this context, do not think about everybody can just relate and get along and it doesn't matter how you're born in life, it matters you know, how you work hard and where you end up. No, that's American. Think about more of a caste system, a caste system where you've got people who were born into a situation where they're either very advantaged or they do not have advantages. Upper class, nobility, or peasants, lower class people, and never the two meet and never the two do you cross. And in a context like this, there's really no responsibility of the upper class or the more advantaged people to help or assist or to even take notice of people in the lower classes. There's really no expectation there. As a matter of fact, there's not a whole lot of communication there at all. You're born into this class, you die in this class. You're born in this class, no matter how hard you work, you're probably going to die in this class. It's very rare to go from here to here. So this is just the context. People are set in some ways. And so what we're seeing here is we actually have a master, somebody who's wealthy, part of an upper class, who's actually interacting and relating with slaves, people in a lower class. A little unusual because that usually is not how it's done. But then we have to look at, okay, slaves, and not think about slaves in the U.S. American context. We're not talking about slavery like we had in the U.S., where you're born into it, you're going to die in it, and your kids are going to be slaves, and their grandkids. It's not that sort of a thing. Back in this context, what we have is slaves, and the Greek word is doulo. Doulo, as slave, actually is somebody who, who you can become a slave because you actually owe a debt. You owe a debt to someone. And if you cannot pay that debt, then you can then put yourself in their service as their slave for a set 
number of a set number of years, a set time period, and you work that debt off. And as you work that debt off, you finally hit the point where you have paid the debt sufficiently, and then you are set free. You're free again. Now, there are a lot of different ways to interpret Dulo. Um, some of, sometimes you can interpret it as you know, people who were you know, sold into slavery or bought into slavery because of, of the spoils of war, and they would actually be slaves their entire lives. So you do have those contexts. But particularly what, how it was mostly used in first century, Jesus' context, it was the person who actually could not repay their debt, and so they sold themselves into slavery in order to repay that debt. That sets the stage for the hearers of this parable to say, Jesus, what you're saying makes no sense. Because really what they are saying is, first of all, you've got somebody who is extremely wealthy. And first of all, they're talking to the slaves. That doesn't usually happen. And then not only are they talking to the slaves, they take their money, they take large sums of money, and they entrust it to slaves. Now, keep in mind, how do you become a slave? What has to happen for you to have to sell yourself into slavery? How is your personal financial situation? Not good. In order to become a slave and have to do that, that means you have gone bankrupt and you cannot repay back a, a, a loan or a debt. So you're indebted in a way where you cannot handle the fiscal responsibility of paying it back. So you see how the premise that Jesus is starting out with causes people to scratch their heads. This does not make a whole lot of sense, Jesus. First of all, you're saying that somebody takes all this wealth and they give it to the very people who can't handle money. Imagine, just imagine, you take your life savings that you have worked and, and gained over years of working, and you're going to put it in the hands of somebody who hopefully is going to invest it well and grow it. And instead of you know, asking and finding you know, financial investors who've got you know, CPAs and you know, lots of experience, instead of going that route, you, you get in your car and you go to the, the local corner and you, you pick up the beggar. You pick up the beggar, the one who's on the corner begging for money. And then you get him in your car and then you, you drive a bit and you go to the Department of Social Services where people are signing up for their food stamps and government welfare and you pick someone out of that line. And then you, you put them both in the car and then you go and you find somebody and you, you find somebody who's declared bankruptcy and you know, has had their home foreclosed on them. You, you pick those people, and that's who you give your wealth to in order to do something with. Does that make a lot of sense? No. And this is what the hearers in Jesus' day are, are grappling with as Jesus is leading into this story. But I thank God that God does not necessarily select based on the way that we select. And so we obviously would look for degrees and people who have demonstrated this before. God actually looks at the heart, and God said God gave these slaves these talents according to their ability. So God knew something about them in terms of their capability. And God is selecting based on something very different than we select on. I don't know if anybody just heard the name Billy Bean. Anybody know that name? Yeah? Billy Bean. Yes, Oakland A's general manager. So there's this movie called, in this book called Moneyball. Anybody heard of it? Yes. Okay. God has a money ball approach in how he selects 
the basis of that movie and the basis of that book is Billy Bean, general manager of Oakland A's, back in 2001. He loses his franchise baseball players. They go. They have a bad loss. They leave. And now he's got to figure out, how do I build a team that's going to be a championship team, but I don't, I don't even have the funds to attract star players? I mean, you know, this is not like the New York teams. This is Oakland. So there's no way that I can pay you know, millions of dollars to you know, a few players because that's going to bankrupt us. So he's got to figure out a way how he actually builds a team that is good enough with very little resources. And so along comes this young baseball fan out of Yale, statistician, um, and he brings a very different way of selecting. He says, you know, the scouts, they go and they try to find these baseball players, you know, and they look for sort of the best in the franchise players that, you know, make a big difference on a team. And, you know, some of it's good, but a lot of times they're choosing based on some things that really don't make for a good team. It doesn't actually give the team the advantage. And we are like that. We are choosing, you know, I'll give you a case of point. Sometimes they choose the baseball players based on they look like a baseball player who was good in the past. As arbitrary as that is, we do that same thing. We will choose, well, we need somebody who looks like this, and because they look this way, or they're tall, or they're attractive, somehow we think that they can do the job, or they have the skill set, and we, make, we, we mess it up all the time. Thank God God does not do that. So God actually goes in and has this more of a money ball approach, and like this movie in this book says, he, he actually goes in and he chooses the people who we would actually undervalue, the people who he, we would miss, the people who we would never select. God actually sees value in them and actually selects them. When you think about Scripture, Scripture actually gives us many examples of this. One of the things that have, has always stood out about um, Pentecost, I, I heard a fella talk about this many years ago. I, th I, think, I think my wife was with me. Um, and he was making a point about, you know, when, when the Holy Spirit fell in Acts, all those people who were gathered who, who witnessed that, who do you think they were? Because they saw people speaking in tongues. They witnessed the miracles and the power of God. And then Peter got up and he preached a sermon, and like 3,000 of them became believers. Who do you think those people were? And then he went into... They're probably not who you think. The people who actually were there primarily were the elderly, people who had gone to Jerusalem to die. And he put it in a context that really brought it home for me. He said, there was a saying back in that time, in the first century, amongst the Jews, which is, let me die in Jerusalem. The Jews were scattered all over the globe because sometimes people would come in and take them over, and then they'd go to these other countries. And they were Jewish, but they were raised in this country. They were raised in that country. And one of the things that they always said to themselves is, you know, Jerusalem is still the center. So even though I'm raised in these other countries, even though I'm a part of these other cultures, you know, at some point can I get back to Jerusalem? And so at the end of their life, they would do that. They would, they would pack up their wives, they would sell all they had, and they would actually immigrate to Jerusalem. And that's where they would die. And this is actually the setup to 2 Corinthians as to why there were so many widows that needed to be taken care of because these men would die and they would leave the widows and they would be in Jerusalem. Therefore, Paul had to figure out, how, okay, how do we actually deal with so many widows left in Jerusalem? That's why. 
Well, it was these elderly people then who, it was like Florida. You know, Jerusalem <laughs> became like Florida. Or Arizona, Palm Springs, however, you know, were at the end of their lives, this is where they retired to. And so you've got a mass of people where the population is much, much older in their, in their final days, in their golden days, where we would not necessarily think these were the people who were going to be instrumental in God bringing about the kingdom across the globe. But these were the people, because they had come from all over the globe at the end of their life when the Holy Spirit dropped and everybody started to speak in tongues, they heard the languages that they used to speak when they were in these other contexts. And they heard these languages proclaiming the power and the works of God. And so that's when Peter stood up, preached, they believed, and what do you think they would do after that? Well, God was sending out those disciples. You think they were sending out the disciples into places that had no welcome mat? No, they would get on their version of the phone and say, hey, you know what? Look out for these people as they come through. Watch out for them. These are good guys. They're bringing a message. And they paved the way into all these places because that's where they had come from. And these were the patriarchs of the family, the matriarchs of the family, so their word meant a lot. And so the kids listened. The people back <laughs> who were left back there, they listened. And therefore, there was an entryway for how God was actually going to move and spread the gospel. Elderly people, instrumental in the birth of the church in that way. People who we would think their better days were past them. But God was preparing them for the ultimate. The, the, the power of God in his purest form manifested primarily amongst the elderly. That's an example of who God chooses and what we often overlook. I don't know if you remember when we spoke, um, when I spoke, um, I don't know if it was last time, um, about Mary. And I talked about Mary, Martha and Mary, so not, not Jesus' mother Mary. Um, Mary was an interesting person because she always responded to Jesus, and she responded quickly. And when I was looking at Lazarus' death, when Jesus raised Lazarus, I, I realized that, wow, when Jesus raised Lazarus, first of all, Jesus, why would you put Mary and Martha and Lazarus through that? That's like grief. They had to grieve their brother dying. And then scripture says, when Jesus raised him, there were a group of people who were there at the tomb who, when they saw that, they believed and they became believers. Who were those group of people? Those group of people were the women who were mourning with Mary. There are mourners there to comfort her. And when Jesus called for her, she got up and quickly went to Jesus. And they didn't know where she was going, assuming that she must be going to the tomb. Let's go with her. And that was the audience that was there. And so when you look at, okay, well, Jesus, so Lazarus had to die for what? Mary and Martha had to grieve for what? Because Jesus thought that there was a group of women apparently so important that he needed to actually bring into the kingdom so that when Pentecost fell, then they would also be active. This is God's way of choosing. This is not anybody who we would have chose. They don't even get named. A lot of times they get missed and we even look that over. We don't realize that, hey, there's something going on with this group of women as to why this is structured this way, that God is doing something. And the one that gets me the most from Scripture, this is the one that gets me the most, probably because, because I probably have a kid. And so it kind of takes, uh, I think it takes maybe being a parent to kind of really have this resonate in some ways. Um, but I think we can all get it. Simon of Serene. Do you remember the fellow who carried Jesus' cross at the crucifixion? Here's a Jew coming in, not knowing anything, just passing by. 
and he comes upon the most gruesome, horrific scene imaginable, a crucifixion. And then he gets made an unwilling participant in this horrendous act because they grab him, they make him actually carry the cross because Jesus is too weak to carry it, and now he's got the front row seat carrying the cross of Jesus all the way through, and he's made a part of something that is horrific, something that I think if any of us would have been a part of, we would have registered as a trauma. It would have traumatized us. It would have been something that we would have probably tried to avoid and forget for the rest of our lives. But, but not so. In, in the darkest moments, that is when the Holy Spirit is still working. And so what we actually read in Mark, chapter 15, verse 21, they're mentioning to the first century church, after Jesus has passed, years later when they write this down, they're saying, remember Simon of Cyrene? Yeah, you know him because that's the father of Alexander and Rufus. The first church knew Alexander and Rufus very well because that's how they introduced this guy. How did they know these kids? Well, if your dad was the person who carried Jesus' cross and instead of forgetting about it and going away and never thinking about it because he's traumatized, does the opposite where he now lets it affect his life. He's got one sermon that he preaches and one sermon that he puts into practice, and that's what does it mean to pick up your cross and follow Jesus? They were impacted by that. These are kids who grew up with somebody who had a message that he lived, and it influenced these kids in such a way that by the time the church is established, these two are pillars in the church that everybody knows. God chose this guy. None of us would have made that choice, but that's how God chooses. And I thank God that he's got this money ball approach. It's God's approach, okay? But that is God's approach and how he selects and he chooses us. And that is how we are all in the game. Because I don't think any of us probably meet the qualifications according to how the world looks at it as somebody who can help bring about and establish the kingdom of God in the midst of the devil's stronghold. I don't know that they necessarily would have had my face in mind. I don't know who out there feels like, you know what? God has called you and put you in some situations that because of what he has put and placed in you, it has made a difference. Sometimes you see it, sometimes you don't, but I can guarantee you, God has called you for a particular purpose and reason, and God is doing the work. And anybody who would step back and say, well, I don't know if that's me. God knows it's you. God has selected you for that. So continue to hang on whatever you go through because we're chosen. We're chosen. And so when you look back at the passage, we were the slaves. We were the slaves. People who were indebted to God because of sin. I don't know if you've ever been in debt. It is no fun. When I, when I mentioned my friend who went off to Air Force Academy, and, and then when I was looking at colleges and where I would go, here's the thing that my parents still lord over my head. The Air Force Academy was free. <laughs> As a matter of fact, they pay you to go to college when you go to the military academy. And I chose, the, at the time, the most expensive university in the country. I, I chose Princeton. And it was the most expensive university in the country. And, and my parents, being very gracious parents, said, OK, but you're going to pay us back. <laughs> and there's no way that they could pay for it either. I mean, everybody had to get loans. 
I was in Princeton for probably a good year or two, not recognizing the cost of that, and they gave me a credit card. Now, I don't have financial literacy. I made a choice to go to the most expensive college when I could have been going to college and being paid. And I abused that credit card. I abused it. You get the statement, and what did you see on the statement? Not books, not things that you need to go to college. Pizza. You know, just, I don't know if anybody's been there, okay? But <laughs> that's what I was doing, okay? But, it, it, you think it would be. <laughs> and I remember one day I was at home. It, was, it must have been summer because I was at home at my parents back in Texas. And the phone rang, and I picked up the phone. And it was the university, and they're trying to collect on that debt. And I'm like, I don't have the money. And my mom is in the background, and she's hearing this whole thing. And my mom has spent her entire career in banking. So I know that she's, she's aware of what this is about. I was embarrassed because now my business is out there. This was the thing that I was trying to keep from my parents from finding out. And here it is. I'm called on the spot because it's the university calling. They're not taking my excuses. They're saying, no, there's a responsibility. You have to pay this. And my parents are right there listening to the whole thing. Okay? That, <laughs> that's kind of my version of the screen at Judgment Day, you know? And my mom did not crucify me. Now, she did a very smart thing. She also did not rescue me out of it. She said, you know, this is how they get you. So you're going to have to figure out how you budget and deal with this and get out of this situation. And, and she, instead of rescuing me out of it and paying it off, she said, no, you're going to have to, have to learn some financial literacy and get out of this, and you will never do that again. And, and that's how it worked for me. That's that actually how it worked for me. And, and I thank God to this day that that was their approach. I do. I thank God to this day that it was approach. I only wish that I had gone to them sooner. <laughs> okay? But it is something about how we start to think about the worst. And, and it's our fear that locks us up, but there's tremendous grace available to us that's actually going to give us and deal with the things that we actually need. But we block that a lot of times because of our own fear. That's what's going on with this third slave. The first two come back. They've taken and they doubled that resource. The third one comes back. And he says something very interesting. God, I knew you were a harsh person reaping where you hadn't sown, blah, blah, blah. I was afraid. I was afraid, and so instead of using the talent and the gift that you've given me, I buried it. Now, that may not make a whole lot of sense to us. But I'm trying to put myself in the head of somebody who would be in a situation like that, who comes out of a situation where they've actually made a mess of their own financial situation. I imagine that here's a fellow who, in burying that talent, that sum of money, probably was thinking, you know what, I really could have lost all of this because that has been my experience before. I really could be standing here with nothing to show for it at all. So isn't this good that instead of losing it, which is my history, I actually am bringing back your full talent? Sometimes, I don't know if you've heard this statement, 
the good, or our good, that we think is good, is the enemy of the great. If you've heard that, sometimes the good is the enemy of the great, meaning God has something in store for us, but we settle for something that's good enough, and it blocks us and keeps us from pressing forward to what God truly has for us. I think this is an example of that, because I do think when you look at the other two slaves, well, they had the same history. They had lost and come to financial ruin and had no way to repay a debt. They had to risk whatever the resources were that they received as well in order to make more. There was a risk there, absolutely. But instead of being dictated by their fear in burying their gift, they flipped it. They buried their fear, and they used and they engaged the gift. There's a lesson in that, and I think this is what Jesus is saying in this parable. Jesus is saying, number one, there's tremendous grace in the fact that we owe God a debt that we cannot repay. I'm, I gave you the example of my little debt that I was eventually able to repay. Imagine a sin debt. Imagine a debt that there is no way that you can repay no matter how hard you work. That is what the whole law in the Old Testament was about. There is no way that you can actually come up to this standard. That is what we're actually dealing with. When Adam and Eve sinned, they started off in perfect communion with God, and they sinned. They gave that up. By translation, then, we owe God a debt due to sin. God then takes the very people who demonstrated that they cannot remain in relationship with him and invites them into relationship with him. It's like taking your hard-earned savings, and instead of going to the investment banker, you go to the person who is standing in the wick line waiting for food stamps, and you actually say, you know what? We're going to actually relate not as slaves, not as people who, who's dictated by your past, but as somebody who you are a steward, and I'm going to entrust you with this. That is how God is relating to the world. And we miss that. We miss that this is the grace that God has given us. God is not responding to us based on what we truly probably deserve, what our past and what, how we've come to this should dictate. God actually treats us not as slaves, but as stewards. And when God gives us the gift, God entrusts, and there's an expectation that we actually engage that and run with it. And this is what the passage is about. And I know a lot of times we feel, feel like, you know, but there's a lot of fear. And you know what, I've messed up my life before. And you know what, maybe I'll just be happy because, you know what, I used to be really, really messed up, but now, you know, at least I don't do that, but I don't need to really go too headlong in the Christianity stuff. Maybe I can just sort of find this middle ground that will be good enough. Please watch out for good enough. Please watch out. That operates in so many people, and it keeps us hung up for so long. Good enough isn't. <laughs> Thank you. Good enough isn't. And so God is actually trying to say, you know what, please don't have this experience of where you get to the end, you come back with full expectation as though you've done something, and you haven't done anything because there's no way that you could do it. It was me, and I made it available to you. All you had to do was take a hold of it. That's what Jesus is talking about. So for any of us who, now I say we're, we're most of us, probably all of us, uh, all of us, on the other side of, you know, we've taken a hold of the gift that God has given us in terms of salvation. We've taken a hold of that. 
but there can still be fear. And, and I'm, I'm, maybe I just want to you know, build on something that you said, Lucas, last week, because I do think there's the reality that, you know what, God has called us to something, and we all struggle with things in our lives, and God is saying that he takes that very seriously. But man, <laughs> I'm afraid for different reasons in terms of, okay, but God, you really want me to, to really turn this over to you in ways that I might be uncomfortable with. I might be uncomfortable with the process. I might be uncomfortable with just doing it. And the fear locks us up. But God is saying, you know, bury that. <laughs> that fear is there, but that is not how I am. Don't focus on all this horrible stuff. I have actually given you tremendous grace in the process. If you just step in it, you will experience that. That is what God has for us all. So it's an encouragement that God has got it. God knows us, and he knows what we need. There's a passage of Scripture um, that says, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but the spirit God gives us is one of power, love, and a sound mind, or self-discipline, depending on your version. 1 Timothy 1.7. That is what God wants. That is what God has invested with us. And I know we struggle with it at, at every level because God is always challenging and turning, uh, turning things over in our lives. But that is the response that God is looking for at every level. That we trust him that he's got it and we bury that fear. We do, something, we do not let that fear hang us up and we continue to move forward. The practicality with this, and this, Patty, I didn't start my timer so I have no idea where I am. Am I? Wrap it up? Okay. <laughs> I mentioned this last time that I lose track of time and I never start the timer. Um, thank you, Patty. So if there's, if there's any one really concrete sort of thing that I would just say in terms of my own learning in this process, because God is absolutely still working with me, I have to force myself to get out of my comfort zone. I have to force and push myself out of my comfort zone. And, and you know me somewhat, I would imagine. You know me. And I'm rather introverted. I'm rather introverted. My wife is the extrovert. And so we went to an event last night, <laughs> and my wife told me in no uncertain terms, she's like, Rick, I'm only standing here with you because you're not out mingling. But if you were not here, I know all these people, and I would be out there. I'm like, yeah, you know, that's true. And I kind of felt bad for a minute. And I'm like, yeah, but you're not going to get me to, You're not going to get me out there. You're not going to get me out there. I have to push myself out of my comfort zone, and I do get reminded of my comfort zone quite often. And I think, you know, the, if I can just pass on anything that, that I've learned in this process, I've never regretted when I've stepped out of that comfort zone. I've never regretted that. I look back today and I say, you know what, the, the opportunities that, has enriched my life, you know, the, even the, the, the little skills that I've been able to acquire and, and, and bring to bear in situations where it's needed, I've only developed those because I stepped out on a comfort zone. I stepped outside of that. I mean, I'm in a lot of different places, dealing with a lot of different situations that, that are the most extreme. Are we looking at here? Okay, yeah. Um, and you know what? I, I didn't just do that. God cultivated that in me. But the first time was scary. The first few times, it took a lot out of me, you know, but God is always sort of moving us into new areas. And I would say if you find that you've got sort of this lane that you've been in 
and this lane is your lane, and, this, you know, and I know this lane. I'm not saying jump out of the lane. I think that lane is a good lane. God has put you in that lane for a reason. But, yeah, figure out some ways where, you know what, maybe you can just try and listen if God is moving you in a certain direction that maybe you hadn't before. We're at a very interesting time in the life of our congregation. There are some of you who have some gifts and skills that you don't even know you have. And it might be an opportunity to step outside of that comfort zone and engage in such a way that five years from now, ten years from now, you'll look back and you'll see, wow, that's how God prepared me. And even greater, on the other side, when we're in heaven, we realize, wow, the impact that God made and the glory that came to God is because God was able to move me and allow me to get outside of what was actually confining me, and I responded to that. So I pray that we be responsive. I pray that we listen. We always pray that God speak to us, but I think part of that needs to also be, but God, when we hear, give us hearts that respond. Give us a willing heart that responds, and I think we'll see amazing things. So with that, I will listen to my wife and wrap it up. If there's anyone at this point who you do want prayer for anything in particular, you know, and, and you know, I, I open it up absolutely to, to, to anything, um, this is that time. I think, you know, during this season when we're being intentional about being in prayer with one another, you know, I, I do imagine this doesn't have to stop just because we're in a season where we may not necessarily have a head pastor. I would imagine, wow, imagine when, when God does bring us that person and he walks into this congregation, this family, and we continue to do that. We continue to operate in the way a, as a family and in the places where God has used us because I do know, um, I, I know many pastors who, there are some churches that run pastors off. <laughs> they kill the pastor, you know. And, and I pray that we're the church that is the opposite of that. I pray that we're sort of the diamond in the rough, that when the pastor comes along, he's like, Lord, this is the answer to my prayer. You know my need. And we're that grace to that person that they need. Because God has cultivated us and prepared us for that. So at this time, please feel free to come forward. Patty, if you would come up as well and, and be able to pray with folks. Um, we'll just take a few moments. If there's prayers for anything that's needed, please feel free to come forward. Um, and I'll turn over to Lucas. Beautiful name it is. What a beautiful name it is. 